Geico presents, oh, uh, not again, another voicemail from your roommate. Hey, man, so I was in a rush to get to work and I left the back door open. Could you shut it? I left it wide open. Uh, while you're there, could you also turn off the oven and all of the burners? <laughs> My mom never let me use the oven. I wonder why. <laughs> The GEICO Insurance Agency could help keep your personal property protected, like if it's your roommate's first time operating an oven. Visit GEICO.com to see how easy it is to switch and save on renter's insurance. From Welcome to the podcast. I'm Corey. I'm Natalie. I'm Ginny. And we are the Art History Babes. 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 We're on day two of Art History Babes work weekend. Yep. We're just knocking out work for y'all all day, every day. <laughs> all of it. <laughs> <laughs> We're running on fumes a little bit here, so bear with us. <laughs> Trying to pep things up with a little little midday. What was this, Cabernet? Uh, I believe it is. And midday Cabernet. Midday Cabernet. And it's extra fitting because it is a red wine. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, it is. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. We're in theme. We are in theme. Drinking red wine. Mm-hmm. Talking about the color blue. Just kidding. <laughs> red. Red, red wine. Oh, my God. <laughs> Stay what a classic. To me. I don't think that's the line. I think I just say the I wrong think, line. I think it does say yeah. stay close does to it? me. Okay. That doesn't seem then, to make any sense, but yeah, I think that's right. You know, because right. you want to keep your bottle close to you. <laughs> All times. <laughs> glass. Thanks, guys. I feel really supported right now. <laughs> I know I'm wrong, but I feel no, I very supported. Right, <laughs> yeah, I, that felt right to me. I'm like pretty okay. convinced. See, I'm convinced now, too. Yeah. All right. That's think, all it took. Yeah, I think that's... <laughs> cool. It's something. If, if it's not that song, it's something. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, in color red, it was only a matter of time till we got to this color. It was like it's so obvious that we kind of... Put it off a little. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was my next hope that was the next color we were going to do because it's just such a powerful color. Yeah. And I think there's so much to talk about. And red and shades of red are definitely my favorite color. It's really interesting, too, because some people have really adverse reactions to the color red. Yeah, definitely. I have a friend who's in architecture school, so he has a really good eye for like design and color and all that. And he has a reaction to red that's almost like he has a headache or something. He's just like, ugh, like reds and oranges mm. and yellows. He loves blue, green, and gray. He yeah. stays in that lane. I'm with him. He's I not, like a, not a fiery person. No. Well, his personality is, <laughs> but his palate is not. He brings the fire. Yeah. He doesn't need it provided. Yeah, I like cooler tones, definitely. Because yeah. people either lean one way or the other, mm-hmm. generally. My, my mom's favorite color is red. She loves it. If mm-hmm. I don't know how much time you guys have spent in the main house, but there's a lot of red. Yeah. It's definitely an accent Same with color. My mom. Yeah. And I prefer the yeah blues, greens. Or grays and blacks, yeah. <laughs> if I'm being very honest. Right. I just like colors. Just all of them, really. <laughs> like, just all of them. I really am a big fan of just bursts of color. Like, yeah. and, Ooh, hard and, for me. And different, like, <laughs> Natalie just can't quite handle it. But mm-hmm. <laughs> I love, you know, grayscale and, like, blacks, too. But I just really like being assaulted by color. Just like wakes me up and I'm like, whoa, yeah. life. Like, yeah, depending on of... the shade of red assaulting is a good way to describe yeah, it because yeah. it 
it is oftentimes very like vibrant and pops out against so many other colors. It can be like very in your face. Yeah. And there's science, you know, science, that stuff to prove that like the human eye is very sensitive to red. Mm -hmm. So all of this that we're saying is actually rooted in science. It totally the eye is very sensitive to red. Mm -hmm. For sure. And it makes sense as far as thinking about survival and Mm -hmm. early humankind where you would associate red with blood, you know? Poison or poison, poison <laughs> berries. Those poison little, and blood. Those cute work, little you dart frogs. Look out for those uh, poison berries. <laughs> Red can be dangerous. Um, yeah, but it's interesting, and we're gonna get into this here really quick. But most prehistoric peoples kind of reveled in red. Yeah, they mm-hmm. they were all about it. So mm-hmm. I don't know if that was maybe a like embracing of Could, that alarming yeah. like aspect of the color you know what i mean well i think we could look at it like in the times where they'd be a lot more reliant on their reptilian brain to survive it would be a warning but then once humans kind of like retained control of it like learning to make fire mm-hmm. and learning to create pigments and things like that mm-hmm. it's kind of like the champion of the human ability and kind of claiming it for their own in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I really think that red, especially compared to a lot of other colors, has a really wide variety of meaning depending mm-hmm. on the time period and the culture. So like temporally and culturally, like it can mean so many different things. Whereas some other colors like blue, there's more commonality between like how different societies have like, interpreted it and made it into a symbol whereas red it can on one side mean like fortune and luck and then on the other like violence or passion and danger i mean it carries a lot of meanings in yeah. it which makes it like None of mysterious them. yeah definitely i totally agree the only thing that i do think kind of is a a red thread (laughs) (laughs) through the vast meanings of the color red though is they're all like intense things Mm -hmm. passion lust power extreme violence yeah they vary a lot but Mm -hmm. i mean there's an intensity about the color and there is an intensity about the meanings that we've associated to that color i think too definitely I think that'd be a perfect segue to this quote by author Michael Pastoreau, who wrote Red, the History of a Color. He's also known for writing the same kind of historical narrative for other colors. I don't think we often think of a history of a color, Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. Michael Pastoreau does. He says, Red is the archetypal color, the first color humans mastered, fabricated, reproduced, and broke down into different shades, first in painting, later in dyeing. This has given it primacy over all other colors through the millennia. Yeah. Yep. It's interesting. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think, too, it tends to be like the first color that stands out among other colors. Mm-hmm. Like there's just yeah. something more powerful about it or more in your face in terms of just when you're looking at something visual, which has led to a whole slew of different results in the creation of art over all of human existence. So since we're talking about humans in the beginning times, the Homo sapiens sapiens, the color red is one of the first colors that was used regularly Mm -hmm. in the creation of art. When you think cave art, 
you've got like a lot of blacks, browns, and reds. Mm -hmm. And the color red comes from one of the oldest pigments, red ochre, which is often used in prehistoric cave painting. And it's one of the oldest pigments still in use today. So we still use red ochre today. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, though, I found this really fascinating. Humans were creating and using color pigments long before they began drawing on cave walls. Mm -hmm. We think of the beginning of art as Mm -hmm. cave art. It's where your art history survey text begins. You know, that's like where you think it all started. But actually, various ochres, bones, charcoal, grinding stones, abalone shells, and mixing vessels were found in a 100,000-year-old paint workshop in the Blombus Cave in South Africa. This suggests that pigments were being used for things like body painting and face Mm -hmm. painting long before cave art. So there was an artistic use for these pigments, but it just wasn't painting symbols on a wall. Similarly, lumps of red ochre have been found at archaeological sites in Australia, also with no sign of rock art being made at this time. So in other words, red has been an important color in human expression before the rise of the visual arts, such as drawing and painting. It was being used heavily. In his book, The Art of Prehistoric Man in Western Europe, Andre Leroy Gorhan describes how the floors of Stone Age caves and rock shelters were commonly saturated with thick layer of reddish ochre up to eight inches deep. Wow. Right? Wow. Isn't that crazy? In other words, prehistoric people were using this for a lot of stuff. Like, Mm -hmm. think to get that deep of a saturation. Mm -hmm. They Mm -hmm. were probably dyeing their bodies, their animal skins, spears, and possibly using it to, like, decorate their homes. So in that sense, red was being used as a primitive decoration before we started decorating with, like, symbols. Right. So red ochre was one of the earliest materials used to create a red color pigment with prehistoric civilizations. However, over the years, we've used all sorts of different materials to create the color red and different shades of the color red. So Natalie is going to talk about some of them. Yeah. So for thousands of years, artists, you know, settled for this red ochre, which not to diss on red ochre, but it is more of like a dusty orangish brown red than like a vibrant red that you would find in nature. So, you know, artists would really strive for this kind of scarlet red and work toward finding something that would reproduce it. So sometime before the 5th century BC, Asian painters discovered this mineral called cinnabar, also known as mercuric sulfide. Makes me think of cinnabon. I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) I haven't had a cinnabon in a while. Me either. (laughs) I wonder... I usually am not happy with that decision afterwards. You yeah. never feel good after eating a Cinnabon. It's true. <laughs> I feel like sugar hangovers have gotten worse for me as I've gotten older, more so than alcohol hangovers. Like <laughs> sugar just really does me dirty. That used to be my thing, though, back in high school. Go to the mall, get a Cinnabon. Used to be an airport thing for me. Oh, um, totally. Nice. Yeah. nice. Sack airport, grab a Cinnabon. So back to Cinnabar. <laughs> This did produce a more satisfactory red than the red ochre. So downsides to cinnabar, because, you know, there always are. 
it's poisonous. It's super poisonous. So oh no. yeah, that's not great. And it tended to turn black when mm. exposed to too much sunlight. Mm-hmm. So really just not a very reliable source mm-hmm. of red. Yeah. But it was used for a while. It was imported from Spain to Egypt for a while. They used it on a plethora of things, but it was very rare and expensive. So while they used it on a lot of different things, it wasn't in large quantities. Right. And then the ancient Greeks and Romans also valued red as a dye for clothing, for hair, makeup, paintings. So those of you who are familiar with the fact that ancient Roman and Greek sculpture were not white, (laughs) they were highly decorated Mm -hmm. and colored. Mm -hmm. Red was very often used for things like hair. Right. And most famously, the cinnabar frescoes from Pompeii in the Villa of Mysteries. Yeah, I'm sure most are familiar with that. And I'll come back to that later as the inspiration for a modern artist. Those of you may know what I'm talking about. Hint, hint. And in medieval time, red was used for highlighting important portions of documents in books. So, yeah, yeah, they could categorize pages by uh, by importance based on these red highlights and markers so it's like the old school red pen correcting kind of yeah (laughs) back in the medieval times and arab alchemists would attempt to make gold as alchemists Mm -hmm. do and a result was that they mixed sulfur and mercury and created a new shade of red which we now know as vermilion red vermilion yeah So that was made by accident by the Arab alchemists. Thanks, guys. Cool. And it was later perfected in China and kind of spread from there into other parts of Europe. And Ginny. We're going to talk about some bugs. <laughs> some bugs. There we go. <laughs> I didn't know how to introduce that. <laughs> Ginny's got some insects for you. We're talk about some bugs. <laughs> so for a long time, painters were unable to find a red pigment that lasted in its vibrancy. So a lot of these reds that we've been talking about so far fade over time. And so there was this strive to find a red that would maintain that kind of vibrant, fresh, fallen blood color especially in textiles right that was like the biggest challenge was finding one that held in dye exactly exactly so the plant matter was another one that was used for red dye but it wasn't keeping that bright amount of red so european painters longed for a rich vibrant red that would maintain its color over time and meanwhile for a long long time in mexico Indigenous tribes in Mexico had been raising insects that lived on prickly pear plants. So they would protect these insects on the prickly pears. So like these bugs, they go onto the cactus and then they have these little funnel mouths that they just latch into the cactus and then they suck out nectar and that's their life. <laughs> Sounds um. like a good life. <laughs> it's a symbol existence. And that's their sole purpose in the universe. <laughs> so somewhere along the lines, it was discovered that if you burst them, they would... Uh, <laughs> You know, you just just squeeze until they burst. (laughs) This really reminds me of the purple episode, Purple Mountain's Majesty and the snails. I tell you people, the amount of little creatures that are killed to make colors, it would blow your mind. We just love smashing creatures and making color. Right. Who's the we in that situation? That sounds super unpleasant to me. Well, the human population. The collective we. Yeah, the we as humans like to do that. (laughs) So when you 
squeeze one of these insects, they excrete a really bright red excrement. Yeah. <laughs> their insides come out. Yeah, their insides come out <laughs> and it's really red. <laughs> so what started happening is that in Mexico, they would raise the insects and, you know, fatten them up and then they would die. Like little piglets. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> and they would then dry them in the sun and then would be pounded into a powder to make a rich red pigment. And I will put up a few images of it, but it is really red, just super bright red. So they'd been doing this for a long time. And the Aztecs would use a feather or a deer tail as a paintbrush for this color from what is called the cochineal bug. And it takes a whopping 70,000 cochineal bugs to make one pound of dye. Oh, it is like the snails. Yeah. Yeah. Just be like a mountain of snails. They're tiny. And we can put an image up of the bugs too for all you bug lovers or people who are just curious. But they're really small. So it makes sense why you need so many of them. So many to get your red dye. Right. Right. So then moving on to colonialism. The Spain colonized South America, as many of you probably know. And we're real dicks, but I digress. So... Once Spain came especially to Mexico and they caught wind of these bugs that created this beautiful red color in their death, they were like all about it. And so cochineal dye was sent back to Spain in 1523 and the Emperor Charles V mandated as much of the color as possible be transported to Europe. Soon Spain was making so much profit from exporting the dye, only silver exports gained the empire more money. So it was silver and then cochineal dye. And then little bug life. Bug dust. Bug dust. (laughs) Turned to dye. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) England wanted the dye so badly. By the 17th century, they owned 15% of the world's supply of cochineal, but that wasn't quite enough for them. There were even English pirate ships that targeted ships carrying cochineal. Oh! (laughs) So that they could steal it. I wonder if there was ever any, like, really good battles where the dye, like, ended up in the Oh, and it just explodes, and then it's like a mushroom cloud of red. Yeah. Whoa. I bet there was. And if there wasn't, someone should do, like, a pirate film in... Someone should. That'd be good. <laughs> oh, Pirates of the Caribbean a million. Pirates or whatever. of the Cochineal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I like that even better. Yeah. <laughs> so Cochineal Red became the red in Europe during the Renaissance and onward. It came to symbolize for a lot of European nobility, wealth, power, because it was so precious, it became very expensive. So it was automatically tied to prestige, wealth, power, display of all those qualities and you know this is where we start seeing red becoming more associated with figures of power such as people in royalty and also religious figures like if you look at a lot of what people wear in the catholic church like cardinals Mm -hmm. and they all started using cochineal dye for that really really bright powerful red Mm -hmm. and we'll talk a little bit more about some of the symbolisms that associated with this specific bright red after the break. As we watch the suburban garden gnome carefully, carefully without disturbing it, we notice that it moves like not at all. It's inanimate and utterly without brain function. But 
despite that, when a garden gnome hears about how Geico not only saves people money, but also gives them access to licensed agents 24-7 online and over the phone, it's clear to them you should switch. Because yes, switching to Geico is a no-brainer. But on second thoughts, maybe don't watch garden gnomes too carefully. People might talk. We have returned. We're back. Discussing the color red. Yes. So by the 16th and 17th centuries, cochineal red dye is the shit. Mm -hmm. Everyone is wearing it who can afford it. (laughs) Everyone who is anyone. (laughs) Any painter who's like worth something is putting that paint in his paintings. (laughs) I say his because the patriarchy. Um, (laughs) The patriarchy (laughs) flooded in bright red dye <laughs> i even read that a lot of rulers put restrictions on who could wear red and yeah. how much or certain fabrics and things like that and it mm-hmm. reminds me of mean girls yes. yeah <laughs> totally on wednesdays we wear red yeah but just us yeah basically. <laughs> only us and if you don't wear red you can't sit with us right you can't, you can't sit with us <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that was good. (laughs) So a really interesting anecdote is that Mary, Queen of Scots, who wore a black and vibrant red dress, most likely the red was dyed with cochineal, wore this dress to her execution in 1587. That's a way to go out. Black symbolic of her impending death. And what can we say of the red? Well, here are some of my guesses. (laughs) Perhaps it was a symbol of courage. As she Mm. went to her bloody end, it could also be read as a representation of power and kind of acceptance in conjunction with the black, you know, and especially like black and red together are often red. And I mean, red, (laughs) R-E-A-D. You got me? Okay. As like a very powerful combination, you Mm -hmm. know, because both of them have these associations with death, blood, but I think it can also be something that's claimed as a way of being like, you know what? All right. And especially for a lot of these executions during the time, women often would wear like white shifts and, you know, dress pretty simply. So I think it says a lot that she was like in black and red. Like, Kind of okay. sounds like a fuck y'all kind of mm-hmm. move. Yeah. Like, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Probably the attitude I would want to have if I was going to my right. execution. One would hope. If I'm going to be executed, I might as well look good. Right. Know? Right. Exactly. So red took on so much more like symbolic meaning with this cochineal red. So it can be related to like what I just talked about, death, life, but also passion, anger, love, fortune, violence, Mm -hmm. just to name a few. And it's truly what I said earlier, such a complex color in terms of the varied meanings that it can evoke. Mm -hmm. And for the Incas, red represented the emperor, the Incan people, and warriors. And so in this context, it was an incredibly powerful color and an all-encompassing color. So if you think about where cochineal originated and how people in that area were using the color and symbolizing the color, you can see how that then like translates over into other areas where you have emperors in China and royalty in Europe wearing red as a symbol of their power, as a symbol of their prestige and wealth and all that. So red dye from the cochineal bug was incredibly popular in Europe, but most of Europe did not actually know the buggy 
<laughs> origin of the dye. Only Spain knew that and they kept it really close to their sleeve <laughs> for a long time. So that adds some sense of mystery yeah. to the color where people are like, this is so beautiful. Like, how do they make it? And Spain's like, it's a bunch of bugs. <laughs> but they would sell it to a lot of people and they didn't reveal it for quite a while. And I read also a really interesting tidbit where in the Renaissance, Venice was one of the top exporters of the dye. So like they would get it from Spain and then they'd shoot it out, you know, to different parts of the Ottoman Empire and through China. And it was really common for women in Venice to wear red and especially courtesans mm. to wear red. That makes sense. In Venice. And when you think about like scarlet women and that sort of association mm-hmm. between sex and wantonness and all kind of forbidden things and red part of it could be because of that. And like there was a really funny statistic where they compared the amount of nuns versus sex workers in Venice in in the Renaissance and the sex workers outnumbered the nuns like five to one. (laughs) So yeah, yeah, that's very interesting because red is definitely the color of the vixen, you know, Mm -hmm. it's got that sexualized villainous mm-hmm. vibe to totally. it. Red lipstick, you yep. know. Exactly. You, you're only putting your bright red lipstick on if you're trying to get sexy. Yeah. Like. Red high heels. Yeah. Red lingerie. Mm-hmm. I love the breadth between cardinals and noble people and then prostitutes because I read that somewhere too that not only were they wearing it like in Venice but that in a lot of places it was like an indicator. Mm -hmm. Prostitutes would wear red in order to be identified as prostitutes. And you think of things like the red light district Mm -hmm. and yeah it's really interesting I think it relates back to just this notion though that like red's a symbol of power Mm -hmm. because when Mm -hmm. you think about throughout history what have been women's main source of power has been their sexuality right Right. so a sexual woman or Mm -hmm. a sex worker Mm -hmm. you know expressing her power right red and then a cardinal who's expressing his political religious power right red it's just a statement of here I am Mm -hmm. you know and I think it just manifests according to different social structures or or roles we've attached Mm -hmm. to people. You know what I mean? Totally. So moving on to the modern era, we're going to jump a little bit. Cruising a couple (laughs) centuries. Just a wee bit. (laughs) I mean, I guess when I think like 1800s and stuff, I don't think a lot of red. Because the Protestants were like adamantly against it. Yeah, that makes sense. That's when everything got stark. I mean, not everything, obviously, but the Protestants were. Right. But even in, yeah, and in, but even in the world of Impressionism and stuff, not that it doesn't happen, but I don't think red is a lot. You don't identify it as much. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. I think yellows and blues and Mm -hmm. purples and, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that is because Impressionism was so closely tied with the Industrial Revolution Mm. and kind of the smokestacks and the grays and the steels and that. And, you know, red wasn't as big of a color right. then. I think it took totally. a little a little lapse in popularity at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you get so much of, like, the London fog. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They love to paint that London fog. Yeah. <laughs> and, and red, honestly, isn't in nature a ton. Yeah, so that's very true. So even if you pull in mm-hmm. those nature aspects and, yeah, so maybe that's why it kind of dwindled in popularity for maybe. a while. Yeah, that's a good guess. I think that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But then we get to Rothko. 
So I'm just going to talk about these very specific murals by Rothko, commonly known as the Seagram murals. They were commissioned to hang on the walls of the Four Seasons restaurant at the new Seagram building in New York on Park Avenue. And it was for a 600 square foot mural painted to decorate the walls of the restaurant and, you know, give it a lovely backdrop to the wealthy visitors of the restaurant. To be like, look, this is this is a restaurant suited to your needs, rich people, because there's fancy avant-garde art on the yes. wall. Yeah. So you clearly know you are in the it, right place. You're in the right place. Yeah. <laughs> you have arrived. You, have, you did it. You made it. Don't worry. This is you've where achieved, you belong. You've achieved the American dream. <laughs> oh, man. But these ninnies didn't really know Rothko that well. Bunch of ninnies. <laughs> yeah, they, they overlooked an important detail, which is basically that Rothko detested the wealthy. Mm-hmm. So he wasn't really bent on making the most pleasant of murals. So he struggled for two years to put these paintings together. And in that time period, he took a trip to Europe and he went to Italy and France in 1959. So while he was in Italy, he spent some time in Naples at Pompeii, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm, as we mentioned earlier. And I heard Vesuvius might erupt again. Yeah, it's active. Like soon. Yeah, that'd be crazy. mm -hmm. (laughs) No, it's not good. It's not great. Yeah. There was some fortune tellery person that was making pr- predictions for 2018, and they said Vesuvius was going to erupt. I was like, shoot. Not but that that means anything. A fortune teller, not a volcanologist? <laughs> the attitude? No, not a volcanologist. <laughs> the attitude around volcanoes baffles me. It's such a weird thing. Especially people that live by active volcanoes. Yeah. yeah, because in scientists who like deal in it when they're trying to explain, they're like, it could happen any time between like tomorrow and the next in a million hundred years. years. <laughs> and you're like, fuck. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So should we be scared? And you're like, me. There's a yeah. really good Werner Herzog documentary about volcanoes. I think it's still on Netflix. I hope Ooh. it is. You all should watch it immediately. You've told me about this many a time. I've yeah. watched it many a time. <laughs> it's so good and so cool. He just travels around the world being Werner Herzog and cool. going to famous volcanoes and yeah. just some really cool footage, really beautiful film. It's ominous and philosophical the mm. way Werner Herzog documentaries mm-hmm. are. And mm-hmm. it's really good. So I recommend you all watch that. But yeah, volcanoes are such a weird thing. Like the fact that Yellowstone is a fucking super volcano and we just Uh pretend that that's not a thing. That's the one that really gets me just being That would fuck our shit up so hard. I know. Because it's not even like a normal volcano. It is a super super volcano. volcano. (laughs) Super. It would screw up literally all of the United States. But it's fine. It's fine though. Like the blast radius of that shit is like, two states wide like, yeah. it's crazy what was it um i think it was uh mount st helens that erupted in the 70s yeah and then the ash circled all the way around the globe and at the time when it erupted my parents were living in florence oregon which is on the coast and they got the last round of the ash because it went from its starting place in washington all the way around the world <laughs> and they got like the last leg of it crazy <laughs> and also super lucky yeah right I know. volcanoes are not i mean it's orange but the red oh, and but, the orange and like when you think about lava like exactly ooh. just the intensity and, and like seeing mm-hmm. it too 
I was in Kona a few years ago and we did a little helicopter trip over the volcano in Kona and you could see the lava like traveling down and then just like patches of burnt trees and then we crossed a patch of trees that was on fire and you could see the lava running towards that it and it was insane. like a, a rich reddish orange mm-hmm. it's like whoa it's so beautiful but in such an intense way yeah Uh, volcanoes man but back to Vesuvius back to Vesuvius so when it erupted way back when and preserved the city of Pompeii and its murals that happened and then we get to see them now so that's the brief history of Pompeii weird place too Mm. just I didn't get a chance to go when I was over there and I really need to it's beautiful mm-hmm. the ruins are stupid beautiful yeah. and the perfect view of vesuvius mm-hmm. in the background but it's just crazy how well that art was preserved mm-hmm. yeah like, it's mm-hmm. absurd yeah like, i personally couldn't really fathom how old the place was because it's definitely ruins but i've seen ruins of places that are less than 100 years old that are more damaged than mm-hmm. pompeii you know mm-hmm. what i mean so it's mm-hmm. just like really disorienting like yeah. how old was this place mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's a trip and rothko connected to this Mm -hmm. strange strange place um he claimed that he sensed a deep affinity between his current work and the walls at the house of mysteries or the villa of mysteries the same feeling the same broad expanses of somber color it's kind of a trip because they are very similar and a lot of people like to say that his work was purely influenced by this trip but there were paintings that he created before the trip. Mm-hmm. So it is this kind of weird full circle. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Connection between the colors he was using. And again, he was not really into painting murals to delight wealthy patrons <laughs> of the Four Seasons. But the number of wealthy patrons he has delighted over the years. Yeah, right. <laughs> if only they knew. I know, right? So he was not about that. There's... There's some controversy. I don't know which is true, but he says that he took the commission full well-knowing and wanted to almost insult the wealthy Mm -hmm. patrons. Like he wanted to Mm -hmm. take it to make a mockery of them Mm -hmm. and present them with something that would essentially disgust them. And then they say that he knew from the beginning and that he was into it at first. And then there's other people who say that he didn't know at all. And that's why he turned on it so quickly. It's confusing. I'm assuming Rothko had a lot to do with the confusing nature of this situation. Yeah. I think he retained control through the whole thing. So he's quoted saying to a close friend, I accepted this assignment as a challenge with strictly malicious intentions. I hope to paint something that will ruin the appetite of every son of a bitch who ever eats in that room. If the restaurant would refuse to put up my murals, that would be the ultimate compliment, but they won't. People can stand anything these days. <laughs> right? Uh, like, checkmate. Burns. <laughs> yeah, it's a good burn. Yeah, it's pretty intense. Yeah. And he didn't say this publicly. Again, he said it to a friend and it came out after the fact. But it's kind of backed by history in that he pulled his murals with a $35,000 fine that he had to pay in order to break the commission. He paid it. And he donated them to the Tate instead. Yeah. In London. 
and that's where they reside. Apparently, there was, again, some controversy there with him not feeling adequately respected or doted on when he Mm -hmm. visited London shortly before they opened the room. So that almost fell through as well, but it didn't, luckily. And the paintings are kind of (laughs) dark. They're this wine red. There's been connections between them and the myth of Dionysus. Mm. And you can't help after hearing the story of the restaurant commission that they are meant to kind of represent blood and some of the darker themes that we've associated with red in this episode. What do you guys think? Corey's got them pulled up right now. I'll pull them up for you, Jen. They're definitely dark. They're definitely heavy. I think they're stunningly beautiful, but they're heaviness Mm -hmm. is the biggest thing that comes to mind as much as I totally appreciate his whole you know social justice Mm -hmm. warrior move and everything he was trying to do Mm -hmm. I mean I wouldn't be uncomfortable with these paintings I I think they're very pretty I think (laughs) but just in a more like heavy kind of way So I guess I don't find them uncomfortable. I think that also has something to do with the way they're hung now in the space that they're in versus what they originally would have been because it was, remember, a 600 square foot mural. So if this were to fully envelop your view... It'd be overwhelming. Yeah, you know, people have compared it to a (laughs) post-apocalyptic scene or Mm -hmm. like definitely a fiery, hellish experience. (laughs) And, you know, again, spaced out in an off-white gallery with benches and hung just the way that Rothko wanted them hung, which Mm -hmm. they were. The tape very meticulously followed his orders for hanging these work down to the shade of paint that they use on the wall to the hanging. It's a lot easier to digest. And so I think he made the right move by not doing that, by not allowing them to be hung at the Four Seasons, yeah. by sending them to the Tate instead. I uh, agree. As always, big fan of Rothko and happy to learn another angsty story about him. <laughs> yeah, because I think what I read too was that the red that supposedly influenced him though at Pompeii was of an image of something violent. I can't remember exactly what it was. Mm. But just from what I read though, There's a specific image from Pompeii and the background is uh, this very striking Mm -hmm, red mm -hmm. and the image is of some kind of public violent act. I can't remember exactly if it's Mm. like lashing or what it is, but Mm -hmm. some kind of very violent thing is happening against this bright red background, which kind of makes it this more intense public shaming type Mm -hmm. feel and that that influenced his work on these Mm -hmm. or his Mm -hmm. work in red anyways Mm -hmm. interesting so interesting yeah Yeah. i wish i could remember the exact content of the image but yeah Yeah, if we find it we'll put it up and yeah i'm sure we can find it yeah we'll throw it on our sources or on our images and again we're focusing on the color red so that's definitely the more relevant aspect of these paintings but They also have these rectangular forms in them that, again, have been compared to like Doric columns and things that he would have encountered in Italy. So not just the colors, but the form, but the form. And he's also famously quoted saying, tell them that I have been painting Greek temples all my life without knowing it. Just tell them. Mm-hmm. Just tell them. In tell- case they think that I was influenced by them. <laughs> tell them. I did it first without tell knowing. them. So happy to tie his artwork back into art history very professionally. I think we're going to take another break. A breaky break. 
Contour from Cox has all your favorites, all in one place. And with the Contour remote, you can use your voice to find them on live TV, on demand, and streaming apps like Netflix, Prime Video, and more. See cox.com for details. And we are back. Talking about the color red. I see a red door and I want to paint it black. Red. Paint it red. Red's a nice color for a door. Or just leave also, it, you know? Also, just shout out to our Paint It Black episode. I know. Throw back to that one. You can go listen to Paint It Black where we talk all about the What color a great, black. you know, just to toot our own horns, we're really good at naming episodes. <laughs> I was just thinking it's for true. this one, we could name it, I see a red door. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. I was thinking. <laughs> and I left it red. <laughs> and I, left it. I was thinking red, red wine. Oh, but yeah. Actually, that's so applicable. <laughs> so definitely check out that one. And we have a whole slew of color episodes. If, we do. If you're new to the art history, babes, we got Purple. Purple we Mountain's got, Majesty. Yeah. Another great title. <laughs> Another great one. It's one of my favorite Crayola crayons as a child. Mm-hmm. And then we have two color theory episodes as yeah. well. So head yeah. back into the archives. Check those out. They're pretty fun. But... We are going to talk about a couple of contemporary examples of use of color red in art mm-hmm. in a very specific capacity. When we do these color episodes, there's just so much you can do and so much you can talk totally. about. That I, I was like, what would be a fun approach? What's something I think would be an interesting thing to highlight? And I've had kind of this on and off fascination with artists that use blood mm-hmm. in their work, whether it be human or animal mm-hmm. or just use actual blood. And there are a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Google it. You're going to find a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. There's quite a few artists throughout history and definitely contemporarily that use blood in their work. Mm-hmm. But I picked two of them to talk yeah, about fair. start small <laughs> yeah <laughs> so the first one is Kristen clifford and she is a artist and a feminist and she took the approach to blood art from a very feminist perspective mm-hmm. with i want your blood from 2013 mm-hmm. and this is a very all-encompassing work that has several elements But essentially what Clifford did was she collected several women's menstrual blood for an entire year. And this blood was then collected in glass bottles, poured into perfume vials, and used as paint. And in kind of a performance aspect, she poured the menstrual blood on willing male participants in the style of Eve Klein. Which is really interesting. It is. And I'm like... Because that whole thing Eve Klein did has caught a lot of flack from both women artists and also just feminists in general since. So it's just like turning it on its head right? and then mm-hmm. going an extra mile. Because aesthetically, <laughs> I gotta admit, I love Eve Klein yes. and I love that work. I and think the, it's, yeah. it was at The Walker in Minneapolis, one of those works mm-hmm. when I was in high school and I thought it was so dope. Mm-hmm. I was like, this is great. So I do love it, but I, you know, it's 100% the male gaze meets right. abstract art right. and it's like... Yeah. So the feminist critique of it makes a lot of sense. And this is, yeah, it's a really fun way to turn it on its head because 
One, I love the like willing male participants part. There's an image of it going on and they seem to be having a great time. (laughs) Yeah, they gotta be willing. (laughs) Yeah, they're not mad about it. They're not like uncomfortable and they're just trying to be involved in this artwork, which is cool. And yeah, I was gonna say, we don't know that they're not uncomfortable, but they're involved. They're committed. They don't don't look like visibly uncomfortable. I'm sorry. I'm a woman. I produce menstrual blood, but I still think if someone was pouring other people's (laughs) menstrual blood on me, that I would be at the very least uncomfortable. I think yes. it totally, I mean, <laughs> like, I would, I would too. I don't think that's something I could handle either, yeah. but I do think. Conceptually. Every, yeah, yeah. But I also think everyone has different levels of what they can handle. Totally threshold, agree. Threshold. I think also when you think about things like menstrual blood, like some guys are just fucking babies about it and think it's ridiculous. And some guys are great about it. Like mm-hmm. some guys are not afraid of it in Mm -hmm. any capacity you know Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. i think i mean i too any not just menstrual just having any blood poured on me would probably be a little uncomfortable for me but you know who knows i think some people are maybe a little more open to Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff and at least in this photo i think the one guy's smiling so they look to be enjoying themselves (laughs) (laughs) but anyways so the work this like kind of multi-faceted work is addressing the politics of menstruation essentially and basically trying to form a celebration of menstruation and this idea that historically it's something that's been incredibly shamed Mm -hmm. you know and women have felt shameful for for eternity basic well not eternity but I don't know, basically since modern civilization, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's carried with it a lot of weight. And so this is a way to regain control over it and celebrate it and turn it into something Mm -hmm. both beautiful and kind of fun and, Mm -hmm. you know, and then, yeah, comment on maybe some slightly misogynistic art that's happened in the past. Right. <laughs> so yeah, it's a very interesting work. Check out her stuff for sure. I believe she's also a writer, so I think she's done some like feminist writings as well. Mm-hmm. But look into her if you're into that stuff. And then the other contemporary artist I want to talk about, I really 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 like his work is Jordan Eagles. And his main mediums are blood and resin. Mm-hmm. Blood of yeah. all kinds. Sometimes human blood, sometimes animal blood. And he is also essentially like a preservationist. He knows mm-hmm. how to preserve human blood. Mm. And that's what his work is made out of. He views blood as the, quote, universal life force. And his work is an attempt to highlight the life force, the vitality of Mm -hmm. blood, which is why he preserves it as opposed to letting it dry because we all know when blood dries, Mm. it takes on like this brownish coppery look to it. So he wants to keep the bright redness of mm-hmm. the blood as an expression of life and life yeah. force. And he preserves the blood in a way that maintains its original color, resulting in vibrant and dynamic works. There is a video on his website, jordaneagles.com, that depicts his whole process. And I really like it because I think the instinct when looking at his work and knowing that it's blood, people want to be like, oh, it's so dark and he's so dark, you know, because it's blood. <laughs> yeah. But the thing is, his approach and what he's trying to convey is not dark or morbid really mm-hmm. and the video on his website has this kind of like upbeat happy music because yeah. he's not trying to be morbid he's right. trying to mm-hmm. express the energy that comes through mm-hmm. blood and the color red mm-hmm. and 
so I think even though there is undeniably something kind of dark and mysterious about his work, yeah. you can't get around that. I think it's important to realize that that's juxtaposed with this idea of vibrancy and life and like it's not meant to be an homage to murder or something, right. you know? Right. <laughs> so one image I have, and you can see a lot of his work on his website, but one image I have is Life Force 2012-2 and it's blood preserved on plexiglass with like a UV resin and it just has a very like expressionistic quality to mm -hmm. it. I don't know. It's kind of, it's using an unusual medium, I think, to kind of yeah. explore emotion and life energies. You know what I mean? So it's like abstract expressionism meets human, human fluids. Yeah. I was going to say fluid. <laughs> yeah. Fluids. Exactly. <laughs> so I think, and like I said, I really, red's probably my favorite color. So I really love these works. I think they're kind of mesmerizing and really beautiful. He also did a really great project called Blood Mirror, which was created with donated blood from the LGBTQ community that was meant to advocate for fair blood donation nation policy it's very cool oh, yeah. right yeah it's a very cool merging of ideas mm -hmm. right. with what he already was interested in doing with meaningful right yeah yeah the, the social commentary aspect you know yeah. yeah i totally agree i thought that was brilliant because it's just it's not a jump you'd expect to make with right. with a medium like this but it's a just a really smart idea and a really cool project to be involved in. Mm -hmm. um, so his work is definitely worth checking out. I mean, like, I don't think you guys can tell me if I'm wrong. So kind of with Kristen Clifford's work, you know, it's actual images of blood being poured on people. Maybe not great for the squeamish. But I feel like Jordan Eagles is, is a little more digestible. I agree. Because you know it's blood, but it is handled in a way that is more visually right. pleasing. Right. You know what I mean? Right. So I guess I, I find it very digestible. It doesn't gross me out at all to look yeah. at. I mean, I, I get what Kristen Clifford is going for. Mm -hmm. And I, I understand what it's referencing and why she's making that reference. But I feel like uh, removing that context, it's not as like visually stimulating or pleasing. Whereas the other example, it's just treated more as like paint and yeah. kind of in a more just art. Yeah, exactly. Kristen Clifford's classical art kind of way. Exactly. Kristen Clifford's is way more performance yes. conceptual stuff. Yeah. So you got to get on board with the concept, mm -hmm. basically. I totally agree. And I mean, I don't have a lot of images. I know. I was just trying to look for some and there's one of her painting red on one of the guy's peens. Yeah. Nice. And then uh, another one of them standing. They're both kind of slender guys and they're both standing like contrapposto. And I was like, they just look like a couple of little Renaissance models. Mm -hmm. <laughs> little Donatellos. You know, that like Caravaggio would have been like mm -hmm. having crushes on. Yep. <laughs> I wonder if there were like images of the prints that they made with their bodies exactly right? like the can, prints with their bodies yeah because yeah. you can see it a little bit in the background there and with the klein work that's was this but with blue and with women you see pictures of him applying it and you see the models and all that yeah exactly but then you see a lot of pictures of the designs that were actually made yeah the bodies. final works are really cool yeah. in terms of the eve klein and right I just pulled an image from the internet. I didn't really get to see a lot well, of images from I this. I was looking more. There aren't that. Yeah, yeah I have looked too. I, I don't think she has a website. I saw like a Tumblr. Me but too. It, it wasn't really loading. <laughs> 
because I'd also be interested in seeing like the perfume vials. That could be a really interesting I visual did see thing. An image of that, and it was because when you were describing it at first, I was like, "Why were they put it into perfume vials?" And then it was like, "Oh, that's like part of the process, or it's like your collection, and they're in jars, and then they're put in like these very dainty feminine mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. vessels." Makes sense. And then she puts it into like a a metal pan. A tinfoil pan. I know what you're talking about, like a like mixing paints in it. Or, yeah, or like putting like a, a tray, like a paint tray. I know that's not. In. Yeah, <laughs> making lasagna. I, yeah. I propagated some succulents in one last yeah. month. Yeah, yeah. no, I I don't know what they're called. But it's interesting that she moved them to several different containers. Yeah. So there's a lot of interesting things about it. It's a fascinating For work. Sure. I, and I appreciate its multidimensionality. Right. But yeah, also just from a visually, aesthetically pleasing yes. side, I love Jordan Eagle's I work. I agree. I think it's really cool. If I could own one of them, I totally would. I agree. Second. And the one that you have up here, it's so beautiful. It looks like a heart. Yeah. Like a glowing heart. Exactly. It's a life force like there is an energy coming from the forms that are created from the blood yeah it's really beautiful it is so yeah really two very starkly different approaches to using Mm -hmm. blood in contemporary artwork both of them very powerful in different ways Mm -hmm. (laughs) those are kind of fun there's more quite a few more that i wanted to talk about so google it look into it if that's your thing if you like if it's not it's okay yeah if you don't like blood like that's fine (laughs) yeah definitely don't look these up if you don't like blood well like i said maybe jordan eagles might be but yeah i wouldn't look the Kristen clifford yeah i'm not squeamish but that Kristen clifford after looking for a while i gotta admit Mm. it makes me uneasy (laughs) yeah Yeah, visually that one kind of messes with my head Mm -hmm. yeah but it's interesting in its own right because i think it also just says Something about maybe how we internalize things like human fluids and stuff and how we have become just certain fluids, not even just blood, you know, certain things, they just make us uneasy, Mm. you know, because of the way we have approached it Mm -hmm. over time and now Mm -hmm. that's just like an honest human reaction you know yeah that I totally agree with but on the flip side it's also a very visceral reptilian reaction to be disturbed by a human covered in blood you know like that's a Mm -hmm. very non-societal or conditioned just instinctual (laughs) no no (laughs) like you see a grown human covered in blood and in your brain you're like something's wrong Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Another thing I wanted to talk about is just kind of an interesting little tidbit about how red operates in the contemporary art world. According to Sotheby's art expert, Philip Hook, which... what is that title? Like art expert? Like how? <laughs> like did he go to school? Has he just been like hanging out at Sotheby's? What makes you an art expert? It could be either one. I know. He probably makes a lot more money there than other people yeah, who work there. <laughs> I agree. But according to Philip Hook, the more red a painting is, the higher price it will sell for. Yeah. There's an article that I read that was by The Guardian about this that very brief thing but kind of just goes into this idea that the more red a painting is or the more like vibrant red the more likely it is to sell for higher prices and you know it's just an interesting thing because I guess I just kind of wanted to discuss this and this idea because does it have to do with our associations with red like the idea that red is 
associated with sex and mm-hmm. sex always sells or is it a power thing is yeah. it that lust and power and violence all tied into power so it also yeah. is a power play you yeah. know to spend a ton of money on a red painting mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or does red represent consumerist desire you know what i mean yeah I and really... i also would like to know statistics like do these red paintings actually sell for higher prices or is this just like something this guy said on the whim right right right. I mean I could I could see it being true and it's interesting too because it could be the combination of all of those that you talked about it could be a combination of red's association with power with sex with violence even to a certain degree and like you think about it too like by the time this comes out it won't be anymore but Chinese New Year was the other day and like red is so heavily associated with Chinese New Year and like in China red can be like a lucky color and can bring about concepts of good fortune. I read in (laughs) some of my research that they also brought up in listing the associations with the color red. They brought up like red and communism. And yes, like, I was wondering if we were going right? to get to that. Yeah. <laughs> right. Which is so <laughs> contradictory to like ideas of fortune and mm-hmm. being like prestigious because obviously communism is all about the proletariat and everyone being equal, but it's used for that. Red is but when the we, communist color. But it, when we think about the gray. history, <laughs> the history of communism, yeah. we all know it played out very differently. Exactly. And I mean, there's almost no better example of people being on power trips. You right. know what I mean? It's a weird juxtaposition. It really is. And then the whole red being claimed by the Republican Party in yep. the United mm-hmm. States. There's uh, a lot of people who really want power desperately grasping for red. It's so true. Yeah. I wrote into my, my notes, I wrote, Red is also associated with Scorpios, and Scorpios love power. Oh. Yeah. That's just a thing. Oh. It's just a real thing. Just a real, <laughs> real. And we're like the sign of, de- we're desirous and power seeking. I think that's why a lot of people like get mad at Scorpios. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, I could see people yeah. turning that into that, negative. It, well, it can go negative, yeah. I think, if you're <laughs> yeah. not cognizant of it. Yep. It can right. go dark real fast. <laughs> right. It's so interesting. I feel like maybe there are colors that carry as many dual meanings as red. Mm-hmm. But it's just crazy how it can mean so many things at once and so many of those things are seemingly antithetical to one another. Mm -hmm. How like red can symbolize like luck and good fortune, but also like violence and death. Yeah. (laughs) Like I said, I think it's just intensity all around. It's just intense things. Right. Boom, red. You know, like it's just. Yeah. Like if you had to draw, like if you were drawing very simple cartoons of different emotions intensity would be red like, yeah there'd be no question yeah you know yeah in, like, it, uh, in seeing red that expression <laughs> seeing red in inside out anger is red mm-hmm. exactly mm-hmm. exactly yeah yeah it's an intense one <laughs> i wrote too strong to be constant question mark because it does take on so many different meanings but a consistency is that it's always something powerful whether yes. it's yep 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 it's whether not it's, in like, on the back burner. It's no, like, write it's it. exactly. Yeah. It's like the ultimate color. Whatever yeah. it's representing, it's representing that like in totality and kind of as yeah. like a, a punctuation mark. Like Definitely. this is 
All of it. Yeah, because yeah. when you think, going back to astrologically, signs that tend to be associated with red are like Scorpio and Aries. Yeah. And they're associated with the planet Mars, which is the red planet. Right. Which Mars is also named after yeah. Roman god of war. Yeah. And those are two crazy intense signs. Yeah. And so it's just, yeah, exactly. Intensity yeah. and just Can power. Be, yeah, totally. And like I had read the Comanche had the same word to mean red for the color and circle, which means that this word indicated a feeling of something that's all encompassing. Mm-hmm. And just like that way of thinking about red where it can apply to anything and like everything that's like intense, mm-hmm. whether it's positive or negative. I mean, maybe calling it positive or negative is too reductive, but just that the color has such a presence in like so many different cultures throughout history as indicating a lot of emotion and (laughs) yeah like really strong qualities just qualities of strength tying it back to our quote at the beginning with michael pastoreau and how this is like the archetypal color and then going back to like early latin and in the language that color was so closely associated with the object that they were talking about Mm. like people couldn't conceive of color as just a thing in itself it's like it had to be applied to an object and Mm -hmm. i feel like that kind of like ties it all together as like the archetypal color in something that was always wrapped up in something else like the totality of like you were saying like the circle and all encompassing and that color kind of had its origin in that idea anyway right and it's just it's all very powerful no i like that a lot and i think that's part of going back to what I was talking about why I find Jordan Eagle's work so compelling Mm -hmm. because I think he really taps into something brilliant with this idea of the vital life force Mm -hmm. because I think that might be the commonality the power that we're talking about the energy where fortune and luck and power and violence and sex come from you know where all of these different things sprout from it all comes from the vital life force Exactly. And so the things that bright reds represent, I think he's totally right on the money with what he's doing with his work is I mm-hmm. think, all, yeah, all of those things, they just sprout from, and kind of going back to what you said too, Natalie, they sprout from almost like human energetic desires you know what i mean just like like a volcano that's like i'm making this thing with my hands like (laughs) i keep making this action with my hands of like my hands sprouting upwards like a volcano Mm -hmm. without even realizing i was doing it (laughs) exactly it's like an explosive volcano just spraying all of its energy into the Mm -hmm. world you know what i mean and for better for worse right and (laughs) eagle's work is especially interesting because it can only be something that really happens in the modern era because beforehand blood as represented by red was only possible if it was coming outside of the body which was never a good thing before and now that it can be preserved or displayed in its form that it takes within the human body Mm -hmm. but outside of the human body that we can reproduce that image of blood now like Mm -hmm. makes it visually more of a life force versus being you know something that congeals and darkens and the fact that it almost rots it can be the blood can be even donated now like it can be contained in a way that you know is not unhealthy right and we can extract blood and use it for scientific exploration as well as artistic exploration you know exactly man i love red yeah love it because i really love cool colors as well Mm -hmm. because 
I like the effect that they have on me. I Mm -hmm. love, you know, the calming nature of them. But I think I just, I am drawn to red because I think I just identify with it better. Mm -hmm. I think it just like makes more sense to me. It's not, even though it's like one of my favorite colors, it's not a color I'd want to be surrounded by all the time. You know what I mean? Exactly. Like you wouldn't really, well, maybe depending on the shade and depending on the room. But like if you think about colors you want to paint in your house, like oftentimes bedrooms are more subdued colors. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times they're some shades of blue because just that's something easy for the eyes to process. And it's Mm -hmm. like calming Mm -hmm. and soothing. Whereas like red is more just kind of like, bam, in your face. I tend to like mix them Mm because like I have a lot of red stuff in my house but I mix them with kind of like lighter blues and like yellower tones like mustardy tones I'm surprised Chagall didn't come up in this episode now that I'm hearing you describe (laughs) these colors yeah that's the palette that Corey's talking about loving right now yeah that's just my whole like I talk about I've talked about Chagall in so many episodes but you know it's impossible for me to pick an artist just one artist ever but he's kind of like an artist I've just always had a soul connection with right because the way he expresses color is Mm -hmm. the way I feel about color Mm -hmm. like it's just it's powerful but it's not like in an uncomfortable way Mm -hmm. it's just like expressing the vibrancy and the beauty of all these really intense colors but it works together in this like kind of peaceful somewhat dreamlike peaceful togetherness they balance each other out you know what I mean I love I guess I love like mixing and matching really powerful colors with cooler palettes Mm -hmm. and stuff like that but yeah red red (laughs) I'm kind of curious how red got associated with Christmas I wonder when that happened. Uh, well, I know I was just talking about this yesterday with my cousin who knows a lot about Christmas. Well, <laughs> uh, a lot about like Norse mythology. Oh, nice. And early pagan mythology in like Northern Europe and how a lot of it was like sacrifices would be made and then they would be hung in trees and like the dripping blood oh. in the trees. Oh. <laughs> and now yeah. we just... Wait, Christmas? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wait, but also, Christmas? if you think about Christmas and... Christ. Jesus the history, Christ. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. that's all about the blood. Yeah. That's true. It's all the, about the blood. Dude, they, just, I guess I was I was thinking Santa. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> that's the Coke company. <laughs> well, because that's what I associate the red with more right. is like with the whole Santa side of it. Christ isn't really that often associated with red. Like because you save that for his blood. Right. But I actually was reading about this recently, just how fascinating with the image of Christ and like how violent it is and how that's mm. so intensely tied to the development of our kind of thoughts about Christianity and yeah. sacrifice mm-hmm. and stuff and how the blood of Christ in our collective minds anyways is Christ. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. So the blood aspect of it and things like the stigmata mm-hmm. and stuff, it's almost like the powerful visual of christian identity you know what i mean right but it's interesting because we're talking about like these artists these contemporary artists who are using blood and i think part of the reason that it's so kind of jarring is that depictions of blood in christianity are so not like blood right. yeah <laughs> like it's so stylized and they look like you know like little fountains yeah yeah, yeah. 
these stylized like bright red like pew like, and it's more know, that ogrey red it lands right in a bird's nest uh-huh. it lands right in a in a chalice perfectly <laughs> with no spills it's such an interesting thing to think about i know growing up catholic and like growing up surrounded by that imagery it's such a normal thing and it's Mm -hmm. so dark you know and it's such a just normal thing like to every sunday go to church and be surrounded by these images of spurting blood or like blood dripping down you know the hands of christ and it just like is what it is and it's it's just a a fascinating thing that you don't totally i think looking back on as an adult is very surreal yeah right yeah and I mean especially thinking about the advancement of red in pigment and dye and ink and paint that really bright red any religious art from especially the renaissance onward like when they were doing cochineal red that like really really bright red you can't go into like a church and not see that like super Mm -hmm, just rich red it's so integral to a lot of Christian art Mm -hmm. because a lot of it has to do with blood, sacrifice, violence, death. All of it. It's there. (laughs) It's all there. It's there. And it's in your face. It's in your fucking face. (laughs) Should we do a listener mail? Let's do it. All right. Art set past thanks to you babes hello powerful babes oh that's nice we're just talking about red i know that's power that's really fitting (laughs) i'm glad you think we're powerful thanks (laughs) i listen to your podcast over and over again for months and i tribute my passing score for the c-set art subset one and two to you badass babes i'm an apparel designer slash art therapist transferring my skills to become a credentialed high school art teacher here in california very cool In order to student teach, I had to pass the CSET, but hadn't studied art history since my BFA in 1995. Thanks to you, I'm now closer to fulfilling my dream of adding an expressionism class to high schools. My goal is to create a safe learning environment where all students can express themselves and unknowingly have access to art therapy. In addition, I hope to be living proof for my students that you can have a career as an artist and not starve. (laughs) My future students are grateful for this podcast too. They just don't know it yet. (laughs) Hugs and high fives, Mindy. Thank you, Mindy. That's so so nice and very exciting. I love all of your goals. That's so beautiful. And I'm really like really interested in art therapy. We need to do an art therapy episode. We really should. I've for a hot second thought about going into art therapy. I really like what you're saying, Mindy, about just gradual incorporation of art therapy into art production. So it's people are getting art therapy without knowing they're getting art therapy. I think that's the way to go about it. I think it is too. Because if we do an art therapy episode, I have to admit I have some, uh, hesitation when it comes to art therapy and that's based on some personal experience so I I'd like to talk about it yeah I got into it for a second because I'm really interested in both art therapy and dance therapy as I think the expressive therapies are an amazing thing and I think they can do some really good work but just like the development of anything you know they kind of came more I think from the world of psychology Mm -hmm. and now we're moving to a place where they're connecting more with what it means to actually make art or what it means to actually dance and feel one with your body and and less clinical right which is a good direction for them to go in I think anyways but there's a lot to be said on we could probably do multiple episodes on that to be honest but it's also a valuable 
potential path for people interested in the arts sure. like that people kind of forget about like yeah. if you like helping people and you like art this could be a really good path for Absolutely. you so yeah I would like to talk about it in the future and I love your whole plan Mindy I think it sounds great and I'm glad we get to be a part of it <laughs> <laughs> and I'm very glad we could also help you pass your CZ so thank you very much for listening thank you everybody for listening mm-hmm. yes head over to all of our social medias we just relaunched our website so all kinds of good stuff on there arthistorybabes.com check it out get on our subscriber list so you will know when there's like special deals and stuff we'll do monthly newsletters all kinds of like vip deals you're going to want to get on that find us on all the different social medias patreon.com slash arthistorybabes is an amazing way to help us out we love you all thank you for listening Goodbye. Bye. From Cabernet to Montclair, they're here to slay the art history babes. No, 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 no. Nature. (laughs) Nature. (laughs) That's neat. (laughs) That's pretty neat. (laughs) We were watching that video last night. The Art History Babes podcast is made possible by support from our lovely listeners via Patreon. Head over to patreon.com slash arthistorybabes to help keep the Art History Babes going and for access to bonus content. Geico presents, oh, not again, another voicemail from your roommate. Hey, man, so I was in a rush to get to work and I left the back door open. Could you shut it? I left it wide open. Uh, While you're there, could you also turn off the oven? And all of the burners. (laughs) My mom never let me use the oven. I wonder why. (laughs) The Geico Insurance Agency could help keep your personal property protected, like if it's your roommate's first time operating an oven. Visit Geico.com to see how easy it is to switch and save on renter's insurance.